As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Seems like only last night we were together. You know why that is? Because we were because together last said, night. I want to be clear here, we didn't spend the night together we didn't. In, in that sense. Although we spent much of the evening together. <laughs> we did, we did, but we did say our farewells and here we are reunited. Yes. We're a bit kind of nervous about talking about even the, the, the topic of this week's episode. It's a sort of third rail, I think, as the Americans would say, of British politics. Yeah, because we're going to talk about private schools. Yeah. Um, do you want to I think it's an important... I mean, look, you know, we are a class-ridden society... There's no question that private schools, or as some people call them public schools, are an element of that. There's a very, very important, I think, new book called Engines of Privilege, Britain's Private School Problem by Francis Green and David Kinniston. And we're going to be talking to David Kinniston, who is a very eminent historian. I think the most important thing I want to say about this is we've got to talk about it without judgmentalism. This is about decisions we make as a society about what kind of country we want to live in. It's not about a critique of the individual decisions that parents make at the moment. And I think that's really, and I think we sort of take that off the table because, you know, I don't know whether you saw on social media, there's this guy who's called Corbyn Easter Teen, uh, and he's like got a scholarship to Eton and some people have been giving him grief and lots of people haven't been giving grief. We're not trying to make judgments about the, the decisions people make. We're trying to have a debate about what kind of society we want to be and what rules we want to, to live by. Do you want to talk about your? private school experience yeah so i'm from a very normal background my dad was a postman my mum was a nurse both grew up on a council estate my dad was a staunch trade unionist right i went to a very regular local primary school and then when i was about nine or ten the teachers called my parents in and said look jeffrey's clever and there is this new thing called the assisted place scheme where the government funds places at private schools yeah and we think you should put him forward because it'll give him a better chance in life yeah now 
like the whole their whole lives my parents they you know they had this one set of principles with regards to schools but then then when it's framed like that like it's an opportunity for your child to have a different kind of life it becomes a difficult thing to say no to yes uh so I took the exam, I passed, and I went to this private school on this government scheme. Now, as it happens, I was only there for a year. I hated it. I didn't fit in. Uh, I felt like there was a real sort of them and us situation when it came to this tiny number of kids on assisted play schemes and then the, the rest of the fee-paying right. boys. And it, it was intimidating. It was partial. I was kind of a bullied a little bit because of my background and I ended up leaving after a year and going to the local comprehensive school where I would have gone anyway. Yeah. But the reason I thought this was worth mentioning is that there can be something very insidious about the choice to send a kid to private school, but it's also like a very human thing to have the cognitive dissonance of what you think is right for the world and then being presented with an opportunity for your own child yes and i think it's important as we talk about private schools in this episode we're very much talking about the problems that the whole system causes yeah and not the individual choices parents are making in i mean life. the things i want to know are what's the history of private schools and that is a very interesting part of of david kinnison's book why should this matter to us and what, if anything, can we do about it? And we've got David Kiniston, as I say, and, and Melissa Ben uh, to talk, you know, in, in a very hopefully kind of sober and evidence-based way about this. So on to our reasons to be cheerful then. What's, what's yours? Well, my reason to be cheerful is about your wife and my wife. Your wife, because the reason we were together last night was we were at Sarah's brilliant um, comedy show. And honestly, I'm not just saying this because uh, you know you're fr- you're my friend and Sarah's my friend, but but she was absolutely brilliant and and I, I suppose for me it sort of brought home the difference between being funny and being a stand-up comedian. She's incredibly funny, but or and it's just an incredibly she's just got incredible timing. Incredible, it's, it's it's like a I'd liken it to like the building of a very beautiful building. It just brought home to me that that's what. designing an hour of stand-up comedy is like and then the and then you know for me uh, it's even more important than that um justine became a high court judge or has been announced that she's becoming a high court judge this week it's amazing uh, which is pretty um amazing i I said to her as well i'm a very judgmental person so if there's anything where she you know can't quite make her mind up which way to go just ask me for advice and i I will judge on her behalf i think that'll have obviously made her feel really reassured yes yeah definitely what's your reason to be cheerful um best friends get married by the time this podcast i'm already am married uh, actually (laughs) my best my best friend from back home is getting married i should have seen that coming a mile off Uh, my friend chris ma is getting married to his girlfriend of 20 years on saturday and i was asked to make a speech and then the great news is the the offer has been withdrawn, so I, I don't have to make a speech so so. you would have been good no i was the best man once and I'm still traumatised by the experience. I, I think I misjudged the speech terribly. And I would say, not at this point every day, but most days I will feel a pang of anxiety about um, how, how badly the speech went. I think if I could time travel and change one thing in human history, I, I really do think I'd go back and redo that speech. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So I'm delighted to say that we've now got with us David Kiniston, author of what I think is an absolutely brilliant 
new book, which is just about to come out, called Engines of Privilege, Britain's Private School Problem, along with his co-author, Francis Green. And also our friend Melissa Ben, her second time on the podcast, experienced education campaigner, writer of a relatively new book called Life Lessons, uh, which is also excellent. So thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Ed. David, let's start with you. And, And I want to start from sort of you know, the most basic sort of question of all, which is tell us a bit about the history of private schools or public schools, as some people call them, and why they were set up. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the really old um, public schools that are called for a long time, though a thoroughly misleading uh, name for them, uh, really go back to 14th century, 15th century, so what, six or seven centuries ago, uh, schools like Winchester and Eton. And, and, and the staggering thing is that those early schools um, were essentially set up to educate the poor, very, very ide- idealistic founders. And that's where public schools comes from. Yeah. It, I'm constantly it's, trying to well, explain it's, that it's, to it's, Americans. It's, it's, in a way, the distinction comes a little bit later. It's more from the 19th century, actually, when a lot of people set up private schools. If you think about something like Vanity Fair, where Becky Sharp goes to a pretty sort of disreputable you know, private academy, uh, uh, academy for girls, um, that was a sort of private school. Whereas a public school... The difference that emerged in the 19th century was that the public schools were much larger institutions than the, than the private schools with a much more national composition. So people would come from all over the country to, to go to them. So geographically, a much, you know, much broader reach. And, the, and the, that's really when the term public schools really took on, uh, got some traction. And in the 1860s, there was a commission on the public, you know, the public schools. Right, right. But the history of them goes back a lot, history, lot further. The history of some of the older ones. I mean, there was a huge mushrooming, mushrooming of them in the 19th century for the new kind of middle class. I mean, the school I went to, Wellington, was for sons of army officers and so on, that started in the 1850s. Um, so they grew greatly in numbers uh, in, in the 19th century. But the really old ones, um, Eton, Winchester, I've mentioned, um, Harrow's about 17th century, isn't it? Charterhouse goes back to 16th. Uh, St. Paul's back to 16th. Most of them were set up to, 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 to educate the educate the poor i mean it's a it's a quite staggering thought six or seven centuries on and and about seven percent of uh, children in the uk go to yeah at any one time somewhere between six and seven somewhere six and seven and what data do we have on who they are in terms of what income groups they come from well uh, uh, hardly surprisingly given that they are fee-paying schools often charging very considerable fees i mean the really prestigious boarding schools eton winchester and so on you're talking about forty thousand a year and it's about thirteen and a half thousand is it for on average for yeah that's, that's that i think is for uh, day prep schools it's a bit more further it's more like 16 17 right. probably uh, uh as a broad average across yeah. the whole sector um well unsurprisingly they, they tend to be children of the well-off um i I think I've, uh, that roughly um, three quarters of the intake comes from the top quarter in terms of family income. Uh, we have a, a graph on, in the book on page two, which shows that naught um, to a hundred in terms of income, hundred being the top, and it kind of potters along and then slightly increases by the time you get into the uh, most uh, wealthiest thirty percent, twenty percent, but it doesn't really start to go up sharply until you get to the ninety-five percent point. In other words, the top five percent in I terms mean, of income. What, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, it's what climate up. scientists call the ho- hockey stick graph. <laughs> Quite, it's, uh, a, it's the, a staggering graph. in the sense that you know the percentage in private school at each rung of the income ladder is under ten percent exactly. until you get to about the eighty. Fifth percentile, and yes, or even or even or even higher percentile. Yeah, actually, and then yes, at the ninety fifth, yes, it's sixty yeah. percent. So, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, so that's who goes. Um, 
implicit in what you said about fees, more is spent per pupil at private schools than at state schools. Yeah, in terms of the resources gap, it's 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 roughly the order of three to one. Mm. So three pounds being spent per day on every private school child for one pound on a state school child, which is which is a staggering gap. And the the book is called Britain's Private School Problem. Mm. So let's move on to the, what the problem is. What, mm. In a sense, what motivated you to write the book and what is the problem in your I view? Think, I think at the very core of the problem is the fundamental unfairness. Um, e- e- education is, is different from other purchases. Education um, determines the shape of society, determines who gets the prizes and who doesn't, who, how, how, how life chances are, and also the nature of the education with all the long-term effects that that, that has for, 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 for the child. And we're in a situation where um, children of, on the whole, the, the affluent, the wealthy, uh, have this privileged education resourced at three times the level of, of state education. They already start with considerable advantages, and yet they then at school get these advantages um, uh, hugely entrenched. The schools, the private schools, who've really got their act together in the last decade or two uh, academically are brilliant at getting uh, high exam results, at getting places at the top universities for, 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 for their pupils. Uh, they're very rather good at gaming the system in order to do that, as well as the quality of the actual teaching. Uh, class sizes are half those uh, in, in, in the state system. It acts as a real block on social mobility, um, downward as well as upward, which we forget. But social mobility work, uh, John Goldthorpe, the great uh, sociologist still, 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 still with us, always insists it's a two-way process. And it's very obvious the block on upward social mobility, the dominance of the privately educated uh, in, in, in the top positions of so many you know, aspects of our national life. But the downward is essentially that not particularly talented or industrious pri- privately educated pupils get to a better university than they, as it were, deserve to go to. They're over-promoted. And of course, you know, that, that place goes to, 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 to that candidate rather than the state school candidate. And it gives them a sort of a floor, as it were, for their future, future life. So it's blocking downward as well as upward. And, it, and it's fair to say that our top professions top professions in inverted commas are still very private school dominated yeah the Sutton Trust which is you know which is very re- respected uh, very respected charity and does terrific research in this area uh, 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 you know com- comes up with figures authoritative figures that shows that degree of dominance so whether we're talking about media uh, or, or, or or the law or to an extent business and, and to a significant extent um, uh, uh, politicians I mean A couple of moments, perhaps just to identify one, there was that moment when the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Mayor of London and the Prime Minister had all been to the same school, uh, Eton, of course. Um, uh, And also that moment, I think, in 2014, when Nicky Morgan went to uh, became an education minister. uh, And at that point, every minister in the education department was privately educated, which is given that we're talking about the privately educated 6% of our, 7% of our population is a, is a kind of staggering And staggering there's thought. one figure which is perhaps my favourite, uh, favourite is the right way of putting it, which is I think comes from the LSE, LSE research, which says that you are 94 times more likely to end up in who's who if you went to one of the Clarendon schools, yes. which is and, one and of the top. Sort of historic, hist- the great historic schools, as it were, the, the, you know, the, the Eatons and the Winchesters and so on. Yes, yes. Yes, I mean, so so it's 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 a sort of self perpetuating. So it's the unfairness that you think is. I think I think the unfairness is is deeply damaging, both because of the actual practical consequences of that unfairness on society, on our politics, 
in terms of sort of democratic deficit and so on, in terms of our use of resources. What do you mean by the democratic deficit? Well, to the, the, the sense in which so many of our politicians have been privately educated. And so, so to what extent are they really in tune with life as it is for most people in our society? And I know we don't want to go too much down the kind of Brexit mess and so on, but there's an element there mm-hmm. to do with entitlement and so on. Uh, that it's been a sort of, you know, it's been a problem caused on the playing fields of Eton and, 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 and so on. And we should have our national leaders in what, not just politics, but more broadly, I, in my view, uh, coming from, you know, a, a, a greater cross-section of our society. Why do people swallow it? Like if if three if three people at the top level society had gone to the comprehensive school that I went to, people would go, "What is going on there?" Then is the idea planted in people's heads that these schools aren't actually uh, centres of privilege, but they they are centres of excellence and the very best yes. people go there? Why, why do the public? So, Melissa, have you got thoughts well, no, on that? I was just thinking about the, we we were talking about the na- the confusing fact that they're called public when in fact they're private, but you've explained that distinction. But I think one of the interesting things about the private schools in the modern era is they've really name themselves as the independent schools and that that links to this idea that they're independent which actually when you look at state subsidies is not fair but also it kind of suggests that this is about excellence rather than privilege and so I think it helps hide from the public view just how unfair a system it is. I think yeah I entirely agree with that Melissa. Um, I think one has to bear in mind that these schools themselves um, are often hidden from view. Mm. So actually, you, you don't just sort of come across them in normal life and see the extent of the facilities mm-hmm. and so on, which are staggering sometimes. Um, uh, they're concentrated in, 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 in certain parts of the country, particularly London and the southeast. So that if one was living in, say, you know, as it were, a, a Lancashire mill town, a, a, a Blackburn, a Burnley, a Preston, an Oldham, um, chances are you're never really going to encounter them in your normal life They're on a different planet in some, in, mm-hmm. in many ways for, for many, for, 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 for many people. Um, uh, I, I think also that that given the palpable nature of the social and economic injustice of, of, of it all, um, historically speaking, over the last sixty or seventy years, the left hasn't covered itself in glory on the issue. But we'll perhaps which we definitely that. which we definitely want to talk about. Can I go further down the road you're reluctant to go down? Mm. And you you talked about how Brexit might be shaped by this attitude of entitlement and so on. My view is that austerity was more shaped by that. I mean, I, I, mm, I think if you mm. have been to a school where you, your parents have paid certainly more, maybe one and a half times the average income of most citizens, I just don't think you can understand what universal credit means or what cutbacks in the welfare state mean. And I, and I actually think that that period of the coalition, which when, when we were ruled by, wasn't it, the prime minister, uh, David Cameron, Nick Clegg, George Osborne, all of them had gone to these top private schools and there was a lot of joking about the different ones that they'd, they'd gone to. I was always amazed they sort of got away with it. But I think that we're now living out the consequences of their arrogance and and uh, remove yeah, from the society. No, well, yeah. I, I look, completely agree with yeah. this, completely agree. Okay, so let's talk about some of the counter-arguments that might be used to sort of defend the, the, the private schools. Let, let's start with sort of, the kind of liberty argument people spend money on you know housing food holidays cars why shouldn't people be entitled to spend money on uh, use their money for an education for their kids 
Shall I go first? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I sometimes think it is actually only a respectable argument for, for, for the status quo. And, you know, all societies have to balance liberty and equity, don't they? I mean, that's the classic conundrum mm-hmm. for all societies. Uh, you know, after all, those are two of the three great cries of the, of the French Revolution, mm-hmm. liberty and equality. Um, so it certainly needs thinking about very, very, very carefully. Um, it, two things, I suppose. The argument that education is different from other purchases, different in type, different in kind from other purchases, which I, I do believe to be the case. Uh, and then, secondly, uh, how does one weigh the freedom for the 7% against the disadvantages caused for the 93%? And actually, I think there's a pretty decent philosophical, as it were, argument that the disadvantages suffered by the 93% outweigh the And the disadvantages the of the for the 93% are not getting... I'm, I'm, I think it's worth spelling what yeah. those, you think those uh, are. I, 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 th- I think the um, life chances question is, 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 is crucial um, because we now live in a society where... Um, on the whole, it's not old boy network and so on that make, gets yeah. advanced as it was, say, 40 or 50 years ago. It's, you know, we live in, as it were, credentialist societies, educational credentials that mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. cause people to, you know... So the route into Oxford. And, and then beyond into, and so yeah. on. Uh, so, so that really matters. Um, and the um, private school system with its resources is so so much better place, so grotesquely better placed, really, to provide those credentials. And so in the rate of life, people are given a massive yeah, head start. A- absolute massive head start. Now, relatedly, what about people who live in certain areas of particularly cities through buying more expensive homes to get better schools? Is that categorically different than buying place in a private school? Look, there are clearly great inequalities within the state system and parents game the, you know, middle class parents game the system and gain advantages uh, over people unable to gain the system within, within, within the state sector. Uh, but it seems to me that the inequalities within the state system uh, are relatively minor compared with the gaping inequality between the state system taken as a whole on the one Mm. hand and the private on the other. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there are postcode inequalities in the state system and there are other sorts of inequalities like selective education, to which only 3% of children on free school meals get into grammars. And we've heard a lot about that. So those clearly exist. But I think even if you're living in an affluent suburb in Leeds or even if you're living in Hampstead, you know, if you are going to the local state school, you're not mixing with the totally privileged, there's going to be some degree of a social mix. And actually, in a lot of those areas, because of private education, most of the affluent will be in private schools. So, you know, a, a comprehensive in Hampstead is likely to be quite, um, you know, contrary to sort of Daily Mail myth. It's going to have a lot of children from disadvantaged and chronically disadvantaged no, surely, backgrounds in it, surely. as things currently stand. Surely. Last question on the counter-arguments. Um, what, what about the bursary scholarships mm, arguments. Mm, I think it's mm, quite important. Huge. Your book is quite sure, sure, goes into sure, that in quite a lot sure. of detail. The the Independent Schools Council, which is the main lobby group as it were for, for, for the private sector, make a lot about bursaries, make a lot of noise mm. about bursaries. And I think they are trying to improve a bit. But I would just say I think two 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 things. One is I think historically if if action is ever taken against, as it were, the private schools, I think people will look back and see that they made a huge, huge mistake, which is this. But since the early 80s, which is what, say, 35, 36 years ago, whatever, 
um, uh, fees, school fees, have risen threefold in real terms. Threefold in real terms. Wow. Uh, it's a remarkable yeah. fact. What has all that money been spent on? It hasn't on the whole been spent on bursaries. It's been spent on lavish facilities. Um, and we can talk about why, yeah. why, 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 that, why that's so, but that's certainly been, been the case. So they're coming very late to this. The other thing I want to say is this, that, that when actually they very occasionally get uh, nailed by an external authority, when um, the chair of the I- 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 ISC, uh, Barnaby Lennon, was uh, giving evidence a year and a bit ago to to, to um, parliamentary um, you know, select mm. committee, education select committee, he was asked outright. So, what proportion of of, of pupils at your schools um, uh, pay no fees at all? What percentage? Mm. And it was one percent. Yes. You see, can I tell a story that backs this up on bursaries? Because I managed to smuggle myself into a tour around a very, very famous private school, which I won't name. Uh, it was it was a while ago, and it was before you'd written even the, the, the essays sure, that you'd written sure, about bursaries sure. and so on. And the, the person taking, taking us around, the first thing they said was, people have a view of this school as it being all for the privilege. That's absolutely not true. 40% of our students are here on bursaries. And I remember thinking, oh, gosh, so things have really changed. I've got that wrong. And it was only when I looked into the figures and you've written about this that it's only one percent who are not paying any fees at all and most of that subsidy is to people who are already quite economically yes. advantaged or but, education I mean, bursaries advantaged. are going to people at quite high income yeah. levels yeah. and and to add and to add to that and the problem a real problem is we don't have an external agency to actually investigate this stuff and ditto the question of partnerships with state schools yeah we have we're reliant on our our, our figures from you know from the private sector itself but the additional point to make is that a significant number of that bursaries and, and Robert Vakake actually in his book Posh Boys published last year. Goes Which is also some, a very good book. Yeah, indeed. But, but much more of an investigative journalist yeah. book. And he's you know, he uncovered some terrific stuff. And he shows the extent to which bursaries go to siblings of children already at the school, right. um, sons and daughters of staff at the school, uh, you know, kind of sons and daughters of clergymen, that type of right. thing. Yeah, they often go uh, to what you used to be called a Victorian novel, yes, distressed gentlemen. Exactly. I know quite a few people who went themselves to expensive private schools but have no money, but somehow their children get right. in, but, they're, but they had got Oxbridge degrees or sure. whatever. So, so that's, that's, whole... that's all about networks, sure. people who yeah, look like us, people, yeah, who, exactly. people who belong here. And we can help them, you know, but that's yeah. not helping the genuinely poor and deprived. So, so you set out, both of you, the, um, the problem as you see it and, and uh, so on. Now... What about reform? Because mm-hmm. I think what is so striking about your book, David, and I feel an ignoramus not to have known this before, is the number of full starts of reform that there have been commissions from the from the I think from the nineteenth century onwards, commission mm-hmm. after commission have been thrown at this problem. You know, all of which have basically gone absolutely nowhere. As I understand it from your book, there are three sets of options for reform. Mm, There's indeed. raising the price through VAT on school fees or doing something about business rates relief and sure, so on. Indeed. There is reducing the advantage by doing something about university entrance, for example. And then there is intervening with the intake. Mm. Correct. That's absolutely right. Uh, should we sort of yes. just go through yeah. each each of the three in yeah. a little bit more a little bit yeah. more detail? The first two really come under the umbrella of attempting to reduce demand for private education, as it were, shrink the sector, and that can be done by fiscal means. And the current Labour policy, uh, uh, to, to to be fair, is to impose VAT yep. on school fees, yep. and that actually would be 
quite a significant hit. Increase. Quite a significant hit. A much more significant, fiscally speaking, than the semi-red herring of taking, fiscally speaking, of taking away charitable status. Mm. I think taking away charitable status has terrific symbolic value, mm. but in fiscally speaking, actually, it's not where the real action yep. is compared with uh, uh, and uh, the other person who uh, Andrew Adonis has actually advocated 25% hike on fees which I think he calls an educational opportunity tax and that money would be hy- hypothecated to go into the state system which is you know not yep. an unattractive idea um, uh, so but we, we reckon that this would you know this would hit the private sector quite seriously um, but that most of the schools would survive ultimately would survive reasonably comfortably or certainly would survive we don't see it as an absolute game changer but it's certainly worth it's certainly worth thinking thinking about um the other way of trying to reduce demand uh in the private sector for for, for demand from parents is to reduce the um uh, the kind of, as it were, opportunity advantages, the, the positional advantages yeah. of sending your child to a private school, uh, and in particular, uh, uh, lessening the extent uh, to which you can be sure if your child goes to a private school, that child is then going to go to a top university. And that can be done through contextual, much much stronger contextual admissions policy so which is leading like, universities than yeah. we have at the moment. All could be done through, all could be done through some so quota system. Some form, account. some form of positive lower discrimination. Off, lower yeah. offers. Lower so, offers. Some yeah. form of positive discrimination. Yeah. And there are various kind yeah. of mecha- mechanisms for that, uh, none of which operate particularly effectively at the moment i think and then the third and then the, thir- the third is changing one changing who gets in changing the social composition uh and and for what it's worth but we're absolutely not dogmatic about this we've written this book really to get the problem out there as best sure. we can and people talking about it getting a discussion going where so often there hasn't been a discussion and trying to persuade people to stand back a little bit from our own circumstances and try and be rational and objective about it because i mean we're a mature democracy but we are pretty pretty hopeless at discussing mm. this issue um uh, but 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 anyway our, pr- our preferred and but as it, mm-hmm. just to stress we're not dogmatic sure. about it is changing the social composition at the schools themselves and then the big issue becomes do you do it in such a way that the schools the private schools retain control over admissions or do you do it in a way in which an external authority uh, g- government local authority some form of agency or whatever controls admission uh and in our view Anything would be better than where we are now. So we're not hostile to the Sutton Trust have this so-called open access scheme. Which is based on academic uh, academic, uh, academic, uh, academic, And we're not saying it's the best solution, but we're saying it and will still put us in a better place than where we are no, now. I, I think if you, if you opened up the private schools on the grounds of academic selection, I think... Well, you know, I think yeah, this. I think sure. it would be. A, I think it would be a disaster yeah. because and you would drain from the state sector d- yeah, quite. supposed talent, and you would give mm. the private schools a kind of mm. halo mm. of mm. Um, mm. you know virtue, which is the last thing that they need. Well, I mean, I don't want to speak for David, but you're, as I understand it from your book. You're open about whether you should have what the Sutton Trust calls fair access, which is oh, well, yeah. selection of people on the basis yeah. of academia, or the more well, Melissa Benite proposals, well, yeah. which is. Um, uh, which is, you know, like you to said... To take the chronically disadvantaged. Yeah. And also, when you look at any system of education, I mean... It Just say what up. your proposal is. Yeah, no, the proposal yeah, is that children who have been in care or have are in care or have been in care at any point should have priority access and the long-term chronically disadvantaged. Now, I recognise mm. that this is something that the private schools would reject out of mm. hand. Mm. But it's, it, seem, it mm. seems to me then what you would also do 
do is, mm. as it were, help state education, which is dealing, mm. particularly now with starved funding, mm. with the problems. And of do you people. think that would be, bring the kind of change you would want to see? Well, I would like to see all of the proposals that we've talked about. I, I, mm. I think that a, a radical government should. Uh, go with contextual admissions and partly because the figures are very clear that if you have um, an adolescent who's got a good A-level from an inner city comprehensive or from Eton, um, the same A-levels, when they go to university, that inner city mm-hmm. state school person well, will get a better, better. Get, well, does better, better. Yeah. does better. Mm-hmm. So, no, you know, it's a, it's so a, it's I a, think there's an absolute it, argument for contextual uh, admissions. Yeah. And then uh, I think... The putting a uh, tax on school fees, I agree that the very rich would be able to mm. avoid it. Mm. But I think it's important actually to be fair to Jeremy Corbyn, this proposal of putting VAT mm. on mm. school, on private school mm. fees in order to give free school meals yes. to all primary yes. school children. Yes. Now, a lot of people say that's not the best way to yeah. use that money in the but, state sector, but I think it's a clever move because mm. it's clearly redistributive. Mm. Yes. And yes. I think the public yes. have an appetite yes. I, no, for great I, fairness. I, and, and, but and I have some other proposal. Yeah. yeah. Then, then about changing the intake I also think get rid of charitable status not because of the minor amount mm, of money mm, they save mm. but because it, it it's just not justified no, 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 these no. are schools that started out as charities and now they are for yes. the very wealthy so they're not no, you know just no, make them it, it send a message so, so then, right. yeah. but I have two other ideas yes. which 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 is that given that Oxford and Cambridge f- form a real sort of problem in relation yes, to this yes. why not turn them into postgraduate centers of research mm, and mm. why not in the long term turn public schools or the great private schools into sixth form colleges mm. so if you if you so what you would do is respect the traditions respect the architecture you know you wouldn't be destroying everything no. you're very good on let's yeah. not use a language of destruction I, I so let's use a language of transition and alternative so what use. Eaton would become a sixth form college so Eton would become a sixth form for college any, for, for the for uh, you know for the area mm. and so and, and all that no ex- longer charging fees or oh yeah I mean a free six I mean yeah. I'm I, you know, my interest and uh, my passion is for the long-term integration of the two sectors mm. and a genuine public education system, as you have in mm. Finland. But you know, because we are steeped in the sort of class and social and economic story around private schools, we, it's going to take us a bit of time. But I think what we need are good ideas as well as you know, sort of exciting ideas. I mean, and I like the idea of Eton as a sixth-form college. You know, if I lived I'm, in I'm Windsor, I'm sure Eton's going to love it too. Oh, no, no, uh, no, 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 no. Don't be discouraging. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. But now, t- let's talk, Melissa, a little bit about the Labour Party and, and reform. I don't mean now, I mean historically. Yeah. Uh, you know, your dad um, went to Westminster. Westminster. He was a classic Westminster, Oxford, uh, MP at 25. And then it all started, the story started to go slightly and differently in, and, and in then the, he moved to the left. And in the 60s government of which he was a part, it was sort of parked, this issue with the commission and all well, that. Well, it was. It? I mean, the, I think the role of Crossland is, is interesting, which actually. Is I mean, Anthony Cross, Crossland. Who well, was actually, the, Crossland, he makes these amazing kind secretary. of statements and he's so sort of radical and arrogant, the mm. mix of the two. Mm. And then when it comes to it, he suddenly, he has this commission that everybody agreed the proposals were rubbish i mean they were greeted very poorly and then he just says oh 
I'm not interested I, in I that. I think uh, one thing I, I discovered actually after we, I just happened to notice, and I was kicked myself for not having seen it in time for the book, was a quote from Barbara Castle's diary at the time the commission yeah. was set up, in which Crossland basically said to the cabinet, it's an insoluble problem. <laughs> so there was a degree of fatalism <laughs> right. on his no, part. No, 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 and what no, about no. your dad? What would he have said about well, this? you see, I think he's an interesting example of somebody who had had this sort of classic establishment education who decided to send his own four yeah. children to local comprehensive. Yeah. Now, some people say that the, the comprehensive we went to was, was unusual. Actually, it was a pretty sort of mixed comprehensive. But that meant that he and I had a long decades of conversation about the difference between his education and mine. He was... He, he he was sort of intrigued by the state system. And I think it's fair to say, you know, love him as I do, he never quite got it, right. you know. Uh, but what he was very strong on, and you do quote uh, me on him in the mm, book, mm. is that he didn't think you should ban the right of individuals to buy their own education. He was very uncomfortable with that, which having reread the history of that period, I realised that was very much the sort of Labour view in the 60s, that you shouldn't go down the individual choice route. Um, but in general, the history of the Labour Party is pretty unimpressive in relation to private schools. Um, and interesting that the current leadership, who you might think would be very strong on it, are not. And in their defence, the only thing I would say there is they think they've got other battles to fight before they get to And that I suppose one. in the interest of full disclosure, I introduced a Charities Act in 2006, which introduced the concept of public benefit. Private yeah. schools are justifying their public benefit. But it was pretty weak. Yeah. I mean, it's had some at the margins effect, but it hasn't. But it, it wasn't a battle that your leadership would have wanted to. to no, fight, I think was I think it? I was pretty clear to me as a as a new <laughs> incoming first prime minister. Yes. Um, but why? But, I mean, if if only this tiny percentage, uh, if if ninety three or ninety four percent of people don't go to private schools, why is it such a third rail issue? And I know the establishment yes. is the answer, but yes. you know. <laughs> It's a bit to me like why do people love the monarchy so much given that they are sort of state-subsidised whatevers. I mean, I, 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 I think there's something very deep in the in the English psyche I mean, that is deference. Let's, yes, not, let's not just take on private <laughs> schools. I mean, let's, you know, what, that's just too, I, I, that's too uh, small you, a bone. No, no. Actually, Ed, you, have you done the monarchy on this? We have No, no, but we'll get no, to we'll it. Be sure. no, I'm simply, We've got your number in I, case. I, no, 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 don't, don't get me on on that one because I'm unpopular enough as it is already. But I just think, I'm, I'm just saying there's a sort of element of deference, isn't there? Yes, but I think you could, you could, I, I, I remember Simon Jenkins once argued, and actually we don't include it in the book, but I think actually it's not a bad argument that the percentage gain is just a bit too small for the issue mm. really to get general salience. If, say, it was 15 right. or 20%, it'd still be a real minority, but that would be enough think, yeah. to sort of to start impinging more I think on people also, generally. There's also what people call the levelling down argument. You see, I think, I think it's... I think, for people who send their kids to private schools, and maybe for some people who don't, it's hard to get sort of across the idea, well, we need to make state schools better, which is always the argument, but why do we need to get rid of these other schools which are providing a good education? You see, um, I, I, you, you asked, David, about the harm that they yeah. do to society. One thing that we didn't talk about was, I think, the tremendous harm that the private schools have done to the narrative of state education, yes. because it is always, yes. if only they could be as good as. Well, when you look at the alchemy of privilege involved in private education, which is enormous amounts of resources going to those who are already rich in cultural, mm. social and all mm. other kinds of capital. Indeed. And then you think about schools that are dealing with 
you know, children who might be on benefits and they're being yes. four the to six. The facilities at four these schools are extraordinary. Yeah. But also, I think back to Jeff's very interesting question, I think this hiddenness, you see, you say that it's mm. uh, not hidden in London, but I went for a walk on the river the other day and mm. somebody said, oh, those are the playing fields of a well-known private school that I will again not name. And I had, you know, it's just this enormous amount of land in the middle of, yes. of our urban area that is going to wealthy boys in this case i think if more people knew that i don't want to be a populist but if more people knew that i think they would be angry when you think of state school playgrounds that are so crowded yes yes Uh, there's also the whole question we haven't we haven't taught the h word hypocrisy and people particularly on the left are nervous about being Mm. accused of being hypocritical and so you have labor politicians who choose to send their children to private schools we actually in the book quite explicitly don't criticize that because the parental impulse to do the best for your child as you see it is very deep, very human, and it ain't going to change. And there seems to be a lot of sort of middle-class guilt about it. If you talk yes. to middle-class people who send their kids to private schools, yeah. they, they don't like it. And, the, you know, yeah. there's that, oh, God, yeah. but they don't want to yeah. play yeah. social experiments exactly. with their own I, children. I, I can think immediately of a handful of friends who exactly that. Well, Melissa, what, what is the politics of doing this, do you think? I mean, you've said where the Labour Party stands at the moment. You've said how where you would want to take it. I mean, do you think this is a doable thing? Well, it sounds an odd analogy, but did anybody ever think you would ban smoking in public places? Never. You know, I think you, I think you can build up build up the arguments for change. Possible. And then we also know that the, the 1944 Education Act that established secondary education for all came after the war. We know that periods of emergency and crisis trigger change. Can, can trigger, yes. So yeah. I don't yeah. know whether the current crisis we're in is equivalent. I guess it isn't, but mm. you never know where that's going to go. Mm. I think it's really important to get the tone right because yes. I think if you yes. attack then people withdraw. It's the law of everything, personal relationships, politics. So you have to have this conversation more in sorrow and wisdom rather than anger and fury. You know, we've talked a lot about what the problems are. What would be the impact on society if you did something about this? Huge. I I think, again, it's both substantive and and symbolic. I think potentially uh, huge in terms of, you know, fairer life chances. Um, but equally important, if not more, it seems to me, is the symbolic value of essentially arguing that we want a, a, a fairer society in which circumstances of birth do not determine outcomes. And, um, it, you know, it, it, would have, it would have great symbolic value if we took you know, private school reform seriously. But I, I think it would also transform the state sector. If all those mm, wealthy, mm. pushy parents, you have mm. a very funny line about yes, standing quite. on the touchline of a yeah, rugby yeah, match. That's and, right. I yes, mean, you know, yes, and watching yes. all that private school energy going into pushing their own children mm. ahead. Supposing they put that energy into the state sector, it would it would be extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm. and also you'd end this this terrible mm. thing of saying to this sort of poor benighted state sector particularly at the moment with Mm, funding mm, cuts just mm. get better just get better Mm. and um, be as good as the private schools and then we'll do something I mean it's never going to work no Melissa, the last time you were on you were quite disappointed because we didn't ask you the Jeffocracy question oh Oh, yes Yes, Yes. go on So we have a thing, David, on the podcast where if, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I, I am I'm uh, appointed as supreme leader, but I'm very hands off. So if I made you joint ministers for education, uh, what what is the first thing you would do on on day one with regards to private schools specifically? Um, 
Well, I, I, I mean, I would start, you know, vigorously pursuing what we call in our book a fair access scheme to start uh, changing the, the, the social composition. But I think I would try and do it in a way that gives uh, that although control over places would not be the school, would not be down to the schools i would try to do it with the cooperation of the schools because we are possibly moving to a new phase uh, and uh, uh, you know the uh, westminster school announced a few months ago it was trying to move one of the most prestigious private schools in the country announced it was hoping to move in the course of time to a needs blind admission policy which is a hugely important moment you know let's give them a chance you know i mean i i know giving a chance uh, can be the graveyard of hopes of reform but actually if something is shifting go with the grain of it if something is shifting but at the same time we're talking about huge vested interests so i'm not i hope be naive about it oh well let me be the more radical and troublesome minister of education <laughs> that i'm never going to be i think i would say look finland has this interesting proposal and it's worked very well for them that you're not allowed to pay for your child's education it's a public good so let's introduce that principle and then I think I might pursue the idea I've I've raised earlier in this program which is given the sort of history of the private schools which we in a way don't want to disrespect but are a block to fairness let's Mm. think about using them in a different way Mm. um, and keeping them as and making turning them into public you know, sixth form mm. colleges, as mm. I've suggested. And then Oxbridge, let's mm. use all that scholarship and all, again, all that marvellous mm. building. Let's do it. take away the sort of link between the undergraduate experience and social snobbery and networks mm. and just say, if it's all about scholarship and excellence, let's do that in a, in the postgraduate years. I think those would be quite radical okay, ideas. Melissa. Thank you for asking so me. So, Melissa, we'll be joint ministers and you'll oh, be bad, be... you'll be bad cop. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> OK, good cop, bad cop. <laughs> David Kinniston and Melissa Ben, thanks so much for joining Thank us. You, Thank you. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. 
We're going to speak now to Dr. Passy Salberg, who is Professor of Education Policy at the University of South Wales in Sydney. Uh, but Passy is originally from Finland. Uh, Passy, thanks for talking to us. I wondered if you could start by giving us some historical context for how private schools used to be in Finland. Yes, thank you. First of all, for having me, uh, having me with you, and um, um, it's it's a long story. I try to keep the long story short. Uh, you uh, people need to understand a little bit of history. You know, when Finland was was coming out of the the Second World War in the nineteen uh, mid nineteen forties and and early nineteen fifties, the country was relatively poor, much much poorer than the other Scandinavian or Nordic countries. Um, and education, of course, was seen as a, as an engine for rebuilding the country and uh, and uh, you know following the example of Sweden and Norway and Denmark that were much uh, wealthier uh, wealthier nations. Um, and, and there was a lot of conversation that time. What is the best way to do that? And everybody believed that in a small country like Finland, the best way is to build an education system that guarantees good education for everybody, that it doesn't matter what type of family you have, where you live, what language you speak, that everybody have access to good schools. The problem was that because of the lack of money in the country, the public funding, the, the, the government was not able to do that. So, so most of the education by the end of 1960s, early 1970s, was therefore provided by private schools, and you know, as soon as the government became wealthier and there was a, there was money enough to fulfil the dream that they had had um, in nineteen early nineteen seventies, I think it was nineteen seventy two, when the legislation was changed, so that the uh, all these private schools were amalgamated into the public school system. I mean, what was the resistance like from those private schools and and the parents? Well, you know, most of these private schools were not really um, able to do what they were supposed to do because of the, you know, the funding. So they were they, they were partly subsidized by the government, but they they were many of them they were really struggling with the with the money. Not all of them, uh, and, and therefore there there they, indeed there was a resistance, and and this resistance is still. Uh, visible in the larger uh, urban uh, areas like Helsinki, particularly where still some of those old grammar schools and private schools they they have their own own governance. It's not possible to run a private school that would collect tuition fees from parents, but you can have if the private school is understood in a way as it is in Finland that you may have your own governance. So, so, so there's a board, a school board often that looks after the school, but all the money, all the funding has to come from from the public funds. But in that sense, yes, we have about 75 or 80 uh, such schools that have their own independent governance, but they are still part of the public school network. They cannot select or choose their, their, their children. They have to follow the national curriculum and all the other regulations. But in, that, in the Finnish uh, terminology, we use the private school, although they are not private schools in the sense that they are in, in, uh, in England, for example. And so you are banned by law, just to be clear about this, from charging parents for schooling as a sort of private uh, company or, or sort of, you know, private entity. Exactly. Yeah, that's the uh, and it includes universities and uh, any education institution that uh, issues uh, qualifications or decrees that are like form- formalized. So, so you cannot you cannot do that by le- legislation. So there's only one actually only one fee-paying private school in Finland 
that is the international school that was established when the Nokia Corporation was uh, growing and they needed labor from uh, from overseas and so they 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 had had to be a school for foreign foreign people who came to work in Finland but that's the only one only only private school in a sense that that you understand it and and if you were trying to explain to somebody in in the UK why we might be worried about private schools in our system what if they were to say to you look I'm all in favor of good state schools, but I think it's just really important that parents who can afford it have the choice uh, because it's a sort of uh, kind of liberal argument that, you know, if you have resources, you should have the choice of being able to send your child to a private school. How would you how would you explain why the presence of private schools in the system is is problematic? Well, you know, the presence of private schools is problematic when uh, the the private schools are serving kind of a selection, social selection in the society, as it is uh, in large extent in in England, and it's a very much so here in Australia, where the uh, the, the school system is segregating uh, children into the different types of schools based on parents' education background of often wealth and tradition and, and history and so on so so you know my explanation would be mostly about you know asking the question first that what type of society are you dreaming about and and what what type of country you want to have you know if you if you if, if your values are more about like we have in in the Nordic countries that everybody um, you know, everybody should have opportunities to to fulfill their lives, regardless of where they come from, and and that the equity and equality are the basic values, uh, as it is in in Scandinavia. Then, then of course the, the selective system, um, as you have in England or many other countries where private schools operate, is not going to do that. And you believe you that you can have equity and excellence. Just to be clear. Yes, and it's not only whether I believe, but there's a, there's a ample evidence, uh, primarily coming from the Organization for Economic Cooperation, uh, uh, Cooperation uh, and Development, Cooperation Development yeah. OECD. Yeah, exactly. And so, if you look at the OECD evidence from the last ten, fifteen years, it's a it's a very clear OECD. Actually, is uh, is clearly saying that the most successful education systems are those that combine excellence and equity or quality and equity simultaneously. We didn't know that 20 years ago. We didn't know that when Finland was doing this this building uh, and reforming its education system. But now anybody who really wants to look at evidence more carefully for the policymaking uh, cannot conclude anything but, but that. Parental choice in the system, if it's done in a, in a kind of a market, uh, following the market logic, uh, almost always leads to segregation of children. So it means that the the certain people choose uh, certain types of education, often often uh, private schools or uh, selective schools for their children. And then what is left for the public system are those who cannot afford or or they don't have time to do that or they just don't care or they don't know enough. And the, the, the segregation is the problem, that when we are having a kind of a parallel systems of education, that's exactly what Finland had until 1972. And that's exactly why we wanted to, to reform and turn around this system. And it's very hard to run 
a, a parallel system so where you have, a, for example, a private education that is uh, mainly taking care of education for certain parents and certain part of the society and then trying to educate the rest. Finally, Passy, we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, uh, which is me, Jeff, installed as a, a benign dictator. Um, if, if I was to appoint you Minister for Education, what is the first thing you would do on day one here in the UK? Uh, the first thing, I would probably buy a return ticket back to Finland or Australia. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it's... Uh, we take away your passport, yeah, yeah. Patsy. <laughs> you take my passport yeah. away, but then, then I have to work, then I have to work there. <laughs> but, you know, it's... Um, uh, I, I think it's very important to have this conversation that what, what type of uh, education really would be best in in serving the the um, uh, expectations and um, and needs for the whole whole society. And I, I you know I've been following the in, the discourse in England both in politics and practice. And there's a uh, there's a kind of a tendency of hoping to see England England um, as a as a kind of an example, exemplar education system. And there's no way, I would say that, you know, there's no way that we can fulfill in England this dream of having a world-class uh, school system or education system without building more equity in the in the system. And everybody knows in, in England and actually across the UK that the uh, inequality is something that is uh, is getting worse um, or e- equality or equity are, are getting worse in the system. So, I would really work hard to make sure that equity uh, as a driver of excellence would be well understood politically and also in, in, in practice at the level of the schools and start from there and, and really ask these hard questions that what, what does an equitable education system look like and what are the what are the obstacles right now in England? And, and they would, they, the private school conversation would be one of the first ones to, to take on there. Patsy Selberg, thank you so much for joining us. This has been my pleasure. Thank you very much, both. Well. Well, you said before the episode, this is a big enchilada. Yeah. And I think it really was a big enchilada. Yeah, I could, there's a sound of a cat and various pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> God, I mean, it's... It, it just touches on so many oh, different things, doesn't it? If you dig down, it's there at the root of it. But I suppose fundamentally, I sort of think if you want to change Britain and you want to change the sort of inequalities in Britain and you're serious about social mobility and inequality, I don't see a route to that which doesn't at least go through some kind of change in this area. So you think we should do what Finland did? Well, I don't know, but I think I'm I'm sort of, fired up and thinking we've got to debate it at the very least and I, and I think you know I think David's done a very impressive book because I think what's impressive about it is it's not ideological in a in a sense that it's not it's not coming with lots of prejudice it's trying to be evidence-based I think that's really important going back to what we said right at the start that there is you're not you're not sort of attacking people for make for their parental decisions. You're trying to say what what's let, let's debate what kind of society we want to be. And you've referred to it as a third rail of British politics. Nobody wants to touch it. How do you change that? I don't know. Watch this space. <laughs> Ed Miliband touches the rail. Ah! <laughs> uh, we should thank our guests then. Yep. Uh, so great for me to meet David Kinnison. I'm a great fan of his writing. Yep. And Melissa Ben is always wonderful value, I think. And uh, Passy was great as well, wasn't he? Yeah. Passy Salberg. Yeah. 
the Finn talking to us from uh, from Australia. He was great. Uh, Emma Caution produced our podcast uh, with music from Ed Seed. James Deacon did our eye dance. And Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Oh, she is, we yeah. love Gail Lofthouse. And Emily Power did our artwork. So another podcast uh, next week. But for now, though, he's been the husband of a high court judge. He's been the husband of an award-winning, brilliant comedian. Nominated. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. <laughs>